Welcome to the New Age Boxing Podcast, and we have a full house today with myself, Andy White, and with me today, Arad, Martin Fimmel, and the one and only Terry Chaffin was back with a mouth full of Tiffin. <laughs> Tiffin, I think it is. Is that uh, what they call it? Is that what we call him? Damn. My sister made some chocolate Tiffin, and uh, yeah, Terry and Martin have gone barmy for it, so. Yeah, they can't even refrain from eating it, even when we start the podcast. <laughs> well, that's professionalism right there, folks. Well, Terry, are you going to take another mouthful? This is, this is the Tiffin Review Podcast. Um, let's not. Okay. All right, let's move on. <laughs> He's still chewing. <laughs> Melting your mouth. Uh, okay. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Right, okay, let's talk about, well, basically, just so you're uh, in no under no illusions of what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about the matchroom card last night, and then talk listeners' questions, <laughs> that's it. So, we're not going to deepest, darkest Mongolia for any boxing news there, or America, we're just literally dealing with, you know, the top massive events from last night. We're like, keeping on these shores. Like Conor Ben's fight. That, you know, one of the big ones. Start with one of the big ones. One of the big ones. Do you know, I didn't even watch it. Um, I saw the knockout on a, a fucking vine or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, no, it was on so early and I was still trying to wrestle control of the TV from the kids at that point. Uh, and I didn't care because what's the point in it? Like, why is that on? I know it was on the pre-pay-per-view element of it, but, you know, well done, Conor Ben. Let's see a proper fight. Did you see it at all, Terry? Um, uh, I saw it via a Twitter clip as well, which was probably longer than the fight. Um, look, I've said this before. Conor Ben's re- is reality boxing TV. We're watching a guy go from virtually zero to theoretically world champion live before our eyes. Um, let's not look at it as anything other than that. It's, it's like the boxing equivalent of the Monkeys, so that TV show in the sixties where they took four guys and said we're going to make you into a band, and that's how the Monkeys came around. Conor Ben, you know, we, we want we want to believe it's in the blood, but he's a hard-working guy. He's going to box at 140. There are enough bodies in this country at 140 that could test him. And, you know, wasn't it Tyler Goodjohn who said he'd happily yep. come out of retirement to, to give Conor Ben a test? You know, take him up on his offer. Even if Conor Ben loses, he doesn't lose in the long run. I think all of these tough fights make tough people. It's that simple. Um. Zeros seem to sell, do they not? Like, people like a zero. So, are we seeing him actually challenge to the point where he's going to learn something, or are we seeing his zero getting protected by him facing bums and then risking not learning anything? It's a boxing business, isn't it? So, the you know, and Floyd's got a lot to answer for for this one because he he's made that undefeated element become more important than the talent behind it. Well, Floyd deserves it. So, you know, Floyd's been winning world championships since 1998. He's fought 
everyone he was meant to fight. And I know people say he ducked Margarita and Paul Williams, but what did they go on to achieve? Absolutely nothing, really. So Floyd's zero is a legitimate zero. It's a zero that says, I fought everyone in my generation and I remained unbeaten. Conor Ben's zero is just that I'm hiding from everyone. Um, anyone else with a zero, Golovkin zero, I'm hiding from people. Everyone else is ducking, except for the, the only legitimate O's in boxing over the last few years are Andre Ward at zero and Floyd Mayweather at zero. So into the future, is he going to have that zero protected or is he actually going to get given some challenging fights? We saw with Jake Ball, you know, and, and we've seen, you know, just the the general, you know, the, the words that have come out of the ball camp. We needed that. It's reminded us that there's still more hard work to do. You know, this will only make us tougher. And that's absolutely right. You know, these, these sorts of things, it's better to do it now than when you get 15 or 20 fights in. Then you're almost too scared to risk that zero. Martin, you were particularly impressed with just how poor um, Callum Smith's opponent was. <laughs> it's a hard one, really. Luke Blackledge was mandated by the board to fight for the British super middleweight title. So what can you do about it? I mean, Callum Smith, they keep talking about him being world level. He's finally got round to defending that British title that he had. Uh, he won, what, a year ago? A year ago or so. So what do you do? You fight Luke Blackledge, you defend it. But I don't see the point in why he's defending it. Unless he's going to go on and defend it three times, which he's clearly not going to do because they're trying to line him up for the DeGale Jack winner. So I don't see what the point in that fight was. That doesn't provide him the stepping stone to get into that next level. It doesn't get him... As I said before, I think Arthur Abraham would have been the ideal opponent for Callum Smith as he prepares to go in at world level. Instead, he's taken apart Luke Blackledge in a fight that went on too long, a fight that was dangerous for Luke Blackledge by the end. Um, and a fight that we could have predicted that as a case beforehand. It's a typical Joe Gallagher um, camp fighter in that he's just taking these non-world level opponents, um, British at best, and then they're going to step him up to um, the winner of the Gale Jack. It's, it's madness. Like, what's, <laughs> I don't get it at all. Um, and yeah, Callum Smith, well done. You're better than Luke Blackledge. But we knew that beforehand. Terry? We're going to get someone killed at some point on one of these Hearn shows. And I know everyone's going to talk about how entertaining the card was. But when you see a fight like Smith-Blackledge, what you essentially see is two guys who are leagues apart. And we shouldn't have those kinds of mismatches because Callum Smith can't afford to take Blackledge lightly. But Blackledge didn't have any of the tools to give Smith even the slightest of trouble. If I was Joe Gallagher, I'd be slightly worried because what you saw in Luke Blackledge was once someone started to move from side to side or dip under. So, you know, give Luke Blackledge his credit. He he had done some research, so he was able to move his head across different levels, frustrate Callum Smith, take some of his shots. And you wonder when you get a guy with the chin of DeGale if he does beat Jack. But what's Smith going to do when he's six rounds in and DeGale's not moving and DeGale's probably hitting harder than Blackledge does? So I'd be worried if I was Joe Gallagher that Callum Smith will take that beating and this this two-and-a-half-year wait to fight for a WBC title would have been in vain. But one of the things that did upset me was I had a feeling that Harrison kept Blackledge in for longer than he would have done otherwise, if only to prove a point to Joe Gallagher. And I feel those two, between those two, you know, the personal animosity isn't good for the fighters involved. Okay, let's move on to Scott Quigg versus Cayetano. I saw the knockout. It was a pretty impressive knockout, but uh, what else about the fight? What was the point of it, is my kind of view. Um, they're stepping Scott Quigg up to featherweight. They pull this bloke over. Sky 
Um, the commentary even tells you what they think of the fight as you're going along. In that they were almost laughing at the fact that this Cayetano was in kind of sparring partner mode and you know, saying that he would make a very good sparring partner. Like It's as if they forget they're on a pay-per-view sometimes. It's as if there's kind of... Somebody must tell them, like, shut the fuck up every now and then. And actually, people are paying additional money to watch this. So don't tell them that this bloke looks like a sparring partner. And what was the point of it? it it's so frustrating. You have Scott Quigg, who was meant to be a world-level super bantamweight fighter, stepping up to featherweight. When Carl Frampton steps up to featherweight, he fights Leo Santa Cruz. When Scott Quigg steps up to featherweight, he fights this Caetano bloke. That tells you everything you need to know about it. Question, um, is, can you make the argument that this is what a majority of boxing fans, um, sort of like the more casual side of the fan base and those hardcore fans combined, these sort of fights what they want to see, that's what they keep getting bought? Look, your Barrys and your Jimmys generally don't really care who the opponent is. They just want to bang the drum for Scott Quigg. The card's in Manchester. You get Quig, even though Quig doesn't sell tickets. And let's be clear about this. He does not sell tickets. You know, without Eddie Hearn mouthing off for him, the guy would probably be boxing someone at Dennis Hobson's show. He's he's the least charismatic boxer you're likely to meet. He's not talented. Yes, he's a machine in the gym. And yes, he's ultra fit. But he gets exposed at the highest level. This is why he's fighting some guy that just dragged out of Tijuana. Probably working for the Sinaloa cartel or something. And they just dragged him out. <laughs> probably. He's got, <laughs> a little bit of toughness. But at the end of the day, I don't see the point of Scott Quigg. You know, at, at 126 right now, we have Josh Warrington, Lee Selby. Scott Quigg's fought at world level. I don't know why he's not calling those guys out now. You know, that's, that's the level he should be going in at. All this these warm-up fights. You know, I, I don't think he believes in himself anymore. You can talk as much as you want about fighting Carl Frampton. I don't think Carl Frampton cares one jot what Scott Quigg does. Frampton's gone so far past him now. You know, and, and that's all I think I think that's gonna bug Quigg's whole career that he lost to Frampton and he'll be begging him for a rematch. And I don't think Frampton will ever give it to him. Right, so Frank Buglioni took on Jose Burton. What we got to say about it, okay? So when I saw the fight, what really surprised me when they stood in front of each other was how different the physiques look. So how look, big Frank Buglioni is. He looked huge. Wide. Yeah. <clears throat> he, he looked like he belonged at the weight. And I was looking at Hosea Burton and I said to myself, you're not known as a power puncher. So you're really relying on getting ridiculous amounts of leverage in your punches. You know, a la Tommy Hearns, because you're quite tall at the, at the weight. And once he couldn't do that in the fight, I worried for him because I always thought, Frank had a chance to at least rock him because, you know, if you, if you look at Burson, he's not, he doesn't look solid at the weight. He looks like he should be a cruiserweight, in my opinion. And you watched it, you kind of felt Frank was putting the pressure on in the beginning. And it's, it's what I say with all Gallagher fighters. You've heard me say this on the podcast before. Your first, the first thing you do with them is you just empty their tank. Just empty it. First five rounds, force the pace so they have to use more energy than Joe Gallagher would like them to, which means they can't do that second half charge which they normally like to do to get the you know to get the decision so frank was smart he made him work hard for the first five rounds probably lost the next three rounds in my opinion and then they were just nip and tuck for the rest of the fight and it was a great great stoppage it was desire over technique i'm happy for frank because it's been a long journey i don't know how much higher up he can go but he's a british champion for now 
and there are meaningful fights on the way. You know, you've got, we discuss this every week. You've got the guys like Jake Paul, you've got the guys like Anthony Yard. And now this is the first time we're legitimately saying, now these guys have a target they can look at and go, he's not invincible. And because he's not a matchroom fighter, he is available for those types of fights. How many defeats does Buglioni have on his record? Uh, what's he got? Lee Markham. Oh, he drew with Lee Markham, didn't he? Um, Fedor Chudinov. Uh, I'm sure there's another one at Super Middle, wasn't there? Uh, it was one of the Warren shows. I can't remember who it was. Was it an Irish guy? I can't remember. Top of my head. Um, there was another one. He drew with Lee Markham, lost to Fedor Chudinov, and it was after the Chudinov fight he went up to light heavyweight again. Um, but yeah, no, I'm delighted for Frank Buglioni. Like, genuinely one of the nicest people in boxing. Genuinely a very intelligent bloke, a very um, articulate and well thought out bloke. I'm delighted for Steve Goodwin because it's their first British champion um, in that stable. Steve manages Frank. Um, it's just, it's a good journey for Frank Buglioni. There's a lot of people that have written him off at various stages of his career. And it's just, it's nice to have that, you know, for some people winning the British championship is winning a world championship. And for Frank, it kind of feels a little bit like that. Um, he's still got enough to, to be able to keep going. And I'd like to see him defend it a few times and maybe that is his level. But if that's his level, that's absolutely fine because we've seen enough of Frank Buglioni over the years to know that he's an honest fighter. He's going to go out there and give it his all. He gave it his all last night. You see the photo of the two of them after the fight where they were getting stitched up and they were in a mess. And that's um, absolutely, you know, <laughs> that is a testament to how far both of those two blokes had to push it last night in that fight. So Hosea Burton, full credit to him. He had Frank wobbled in the first round. Um, I think if he was a stronger punch, I mean, he goes by the name of the hammer, doesn't he, Hosea? Which is odd because he's just not that heavy a puncher. Uh, and when you see the two of them, as you were saying earlier, Terry, like the weigh in on the Friday, Hosea Burton may be two, three inches taller than Frank Buglioni, but Buglioni looks like the lad at school who's like filled out to be a big, big kid, whilst like somebody might be a lanky streak of piss next to him. That's what the two of them look like. Frank Buglioni in that 12th round, like to be able to push it that hard in the 12th round of what had been a gruelling fight, like that's testament to what Don Charles has been working on with him. It's testament to how much he wanted that British title. Um, so I say, when for some fighters a British title may be their world title, for Frank, I think that may have been the situation last night. I'm sure, you know, he's a bit of a promotional free agent. We'll see him. Um, you know, probably used by Eddie again and brought back onto those shows, maybe brought by Frank Warren to go and do some stuff on their shows. Who knows? But, you know, you wish him all the best and hopefully he can make a handy payday out of winning that title. One of the things I did find interesting in that fight was, and I hadn't seen Frank do it before, so just before the knockout, what you see him do is starts actually, you know, drops his hands, baits Burton into actually committing. And then just watching his defensive chain, being able to pull the head back, dip it, pull it back to the side, slide out to the right-hand side to let the right hand go, which is, I know, having spoken to Don Charles, like, that's that's Don Charles Nirvana. Like, he loves it when fighters do that, when they're clever with their head movement. So I don't know if that's a Don Charles thing. It might have been something Frank's had in, in his locker his whole career, but he didn't have that under the Collins brothers. So, you know, I think Don will make him a bit looser in movement, a bit harder to hit. And, you know, you're hoping that Frank can actually start, you know, nailing those power shots. Yeah, and being brutally honest about Buglioni, his 
defence has been the equivalent of a football in San Marino for the years. Like, it's just, it's not really been there. He's been all about the attack. Remember back to that Chudinov fight, he took a pasting in that. And like, but again, that showed his heart. And that's why I always thought, we said it last week, I thought he was going to get a late stoppage. I didn't quite think the last minute of the 12th round. But the heart that man has and the desire, um, yeah, I'm just chuffed for him. Great, great result. Uh, he drew with Lee Markham on a split decision, like you're saying. He lost to Fedor Chudinov, and he also lost to Kamitsky. Oh, he did, didn't he? Oh, um, yeah. The same guy who took out John Ryder. Did he also take out some of Adam Etches? No, he didn't take out John Ryder. He took out Etches, and John Ryder beat him in that fucking snooze fest of a fight. And let's be honest, Kamitsky's a very tricky guy defensively, so I can understand how people lose to him, especially British fighters who are quite upright. So... If you ever want to learn how to defend, I know there are guys here who train. Watch Kamitsky because he has every defensive tool in his locker and he's clever in how he uses them. Uh, Katie Taylor was uh, in the ring again. How did that go? Uh, well, I already know that it was against a bum, but uh, your thoughts? Waste of time. The hype's now subsiding. We've realised Katie Taylor's better than any female boxer within two weight divisions of her What's the point in her fighting these people? Don't understand that. The person she should be fighting is the one that beat her in the Olympics. I'm I'm not sold on this. I'm 110% behind female boxing. And you'll hear me bang the drum for Clarissa Shields because I think Clarissa Shields is legitimately dominant. And she will beat anyone. And there, there are a few low-level men I think she'd give a hard time to over four rounds. So Clarissa Shields should be the flag bearer of women's boxing. What Eddie's doing with Katie Taylor... He's taking the fans for mugs. Yeah. Katie Taylor is the best European lightweight full effing <clears> stop. <throat> now, what do you do with her? You tell the public it's hard to match her. She's better than everyone. Then let her fight the Belgian girl. Forget what her name is. Uh, is it Sophie Pedersen. Don't quote me on that. But let, let her fight the Belgian lady who's got all the belts at lightweight. Let's just get that out the way and then go, right, what's next? Because I'm not watching her fight another... Another lady they've just pulled out of fitness first somewhere in Paris and said, do you fancy a fight? Because we're not stupid as fans. We can Google who the hell you're picking, Eddie. You know, Clarissa Shields fought someone she had fought in the amateurs. So, you know I mean, Frontia Cruz is a damn good boxer. At, at the amateur level, a damn good boxer with a bit more fitness, that would have been a hell of a fight. You know, Casey Taylor's fighting the... Yeah, I don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Katie Taylor will be the Eddie Hearn dream, right? Because none of us, uh, uh, and I'm going to include you in this, Terry, to an extent, know enough about women's boxing. So, you know, evidence by, you said about the Belgian lady that holds all the titles. If that was a male equivalent, you'd know who it was, right? I'm not being disparaging to women's boxing. It's just that it hasn't had enough light shone upon it for us to be educated in it yet. And that's fine. Hearn will abuse that. Hearn will absolutely take the piss out of that. Because what he can do is he can put fights on like last night. So they show the record of that girl. Was it she'd won nine, lost one, I think, yeah. the opponent? I can't verify... <laughs> I can't verify that record. I probably I could go on box rec, whatever. But in the male equivalent, I could look at who those opponents were and I'd be familiar with who those opponents. Because we've got that history of knowing who the opponents are, we have that history in male boxing. Of you can read a name and you can, if you don't know them immediately, you can look at who their opponents are to get a gauge of vaguely where that person is 
in their standing in world boxing. So I want to ask you a question. Do you think most of these are made up? Because I do. I think most of these records are made up. When I see a female boxer with 40-odd fights and she's 26, I'm saying to myself, there can't be that many women you could have fought. I think a lot of it's smoke and mirrors, in my opinion. Look, there's a lady up in Leeds called Sam Smith. Yep, She's the only lightweight I can look at and go, do you know what? There's a lightweight boxer in this country I know. And Sam Smith is a boxing coach. 110% Doesn't she box on the NBC Maltese boxing yeah. uh, license stuff? Yeah, so it's all the stuff that they do up in Leeds. I think it's yeah. Mark Bateson and, yeah. and all that. And she's the only lightweight I can say, do you know what? I know what she's about. I know what she's capable of. Marion Marston, was she um, lightweight? I, I, I genuinely haven't got a clue. Uh, yeah, I think You're both proving this point in yeah, May, really. Aren't yeah, we, 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 don't, we know them. We don't know their opponents. And the reason we don't know their opponents is women come in and out of this sport so easily because they don't make any money from it. If Eddie gave women 100 grand to fight Katie Taylor, then they could train for a year. And they could make these fights entertaining. You know, they could take the same stuff Katie does, open brackets, has anyone gender tested her, close brackets. I know that sounds controversial, but, you know, they gave Caster Semenya a hard time and I think Katie looks a bit more defined than Caster Semenya did. Well, yeah, the fact is, look, Eddie is gonna, <laughs> Eddie is gonna absolutely rinse this for what it's worth. Um, you have to hope that he's going to line up a world title fight within the first six months of next year because that interesting Katie Taylor won't be there for that long if what we keep seeing are unknown, unbelted opponents um, that she can clearly beat up. She can fight. There is no doubt in whatsoever she can fight. But we need to see it against legitimate opponents. I mean, it's... It's the absolute matchroom model is what we're going to see if Eddie gets his way with this. And it's going to be painful. The Gallagher model. It, it will be the Gallagher model. She's going to beat up every Venezuelan available. But but having said that, listen, for women's boxing to take off, I've said the young boxers like Hannah Robinson, Hannah Getwell soon, are the ones who will take this over the line. And I keep saying it and people will say, oh, you're sexist for saying it. You need someone who can box and who looks the part. I was watching... Ronda Rousey and Conan O'Brien. And if someone said to you, you know, Ronda Rousey works in your local fitness first, you'd go down there just to see her. You would. I don't care what anyone says. You know, she doesn't look out of place on Sports Illustrated. You can't stick Katie Taylor on Sports Illustrated. And I, I don't think you could stick her on men's health, to be honest with you. So, you know what I mean? We need those young ladies like Hannah Robinson to come <laughs> over the top. You know, the Sam Smiths. You know, Chantel Cameron. Get yeah. her over. Although they, they will cross the line. I don't think we have that at the moment. And that's the problem. Because if nothing else, who wants... Don't you get bored? Don't you get fucking bored of Katie Taylor being interviewed? There's nothing to listen to. You know, whereas, you know what I mean? I'll follow Clarissa Shields on Twitter or Instagram. And I'm like, here's someone who looks like they're having fun in the sport. Katie Taylor, well, no, you know, I don't, you know. Yeah, and can no. I point out as well? Huh. They've now got KT. On her vest. Oh, for Did anyone notice it? So, similar to Anthony Joshua has AJ synonymous oh. with his name. You've now got KT on her vest. So KT is so much more pretentious than AJ, though. Yeah, yeah. So, I think we're probably going to be seeing that as a branding model coming out soon, I would suspect. Um, I, I, <laughs> I certainly think <laughs> that before I'd give anyone a gender test, I might give them a drug test first. <laughs> because it's probably more likely she's taking... Like some sort of steroid in order to enhance her figure, then she's secretly a man. 
I'm not saying she's secretly a man, but but with, with Semenya, they, they weren't. What they were saying was the the testosterone levels are seemingly higher, high. are higher than anyone had seen yeah, before. Were, now, were higher than they officially yeah. recognised was okay to be in a woman, basically. And you know, you know, I always go back to that point. You're in an elite training environment throughout your amateur career, so we get to see what you look like. We know what you look like, and all of a sudden, I'm seeing the the jaw slightly bigger, the shoulders look slightly more defined. That could be growth hormone, though, couldn't it? Well, you can't take that either. No, well, I'm not saying you <laughs> yeah, can, yeah. but yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So it's not drug test while you're at it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we're going to come to this later on. Okay, we are definitely going to come uh, to this later. Yeah, on. I imagine we will. Yeah. I find it interesting that you can be in an amateur setup. And you can have the same coach in the pros that you had in the amateurs. And I can watch you box and go, the way you're boxing now, you would have won the Olympics without a shadow of a doubt. And then I go back and I go, but why didn't they let you do this before? Why didn't they let you get this big before? And then it dawns on me, I go, because the Olympics don't mess around when it comes to drug testing. They don't leak it out. They don't phone. Your mate can't tell you when those tests are going to happen. So you have to be clean. I don't know who we're on about. I mean, this is... Theoretical. 110 theoretical, theoretical. Yeah. Hypothetical situation, of course. One thing that always confused me with the uh, Casta Semenya thing was the fact that they were arguing that it wasn't fair that because she was biologically a woman, but she had these uh, androgenic like properties in her body that was making her produce more testosterone, blah, 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 blah. Now, you get all those, like, when it comes to the, the drug taking in sport, when you get, like, um, Justin Gatling coming back into sport, and then people getting their high, Steve Backley, it's like, oh, it's a scourge of our sport, the drug takers, blah, blah, blah. Says 20 stone Steve Backley. <laughs> what used to frustrate me was, Steve Backley at that point is arguing that there's no place for drugs in this sport. Yet, as soon as somebody has a natural advantage, which is completely, in my eyes, legit, then it's like, oh, but it's okay to give her drugs so that she can be lowered to everyone else's <laughs> yeah. standards. Like, where where does the line come between natural... Like, like Auntie Joshua has clearly got some natural... Like, regardless of any conspiracy theories, he's got some natural genetic predominance to having that physical those physical attributes so do you then step in and say right by the law of boxing you have to eat five big mac meals a week in order to bring you down to you know dillian so, white's level so so here's the here's the problem if you took we'll take one division we'll take the heavyweights if you took the heavyweights put them on an island where they had no no access to drugs or anything and you measure their testosterone level i'm confident they'd be within 25 to 30% of each other, right? There wouldn't be that big a gap because that's that that's how things work when, I mean, in, in male sports. The, the testosterone levels are more or less in the same ballpark. You can have women that have something like 70 deciliters of testosterone per 100, well, is it per milliliter? I think it's per milliliter of blood. You can have them with 70 and you can have women quite naturally producing 220, 230. So you're looking at women having three times the testosterone of other women. So what happened? What does that mean? You've got three times the advantage. You can train harder. You're going to put muscle on more. You're going to keep fat off. You know, women's sport is so complex because the hormones that they play with are far more complex than the ones that men play with. So you end up with women who have freakishly high testosterone, quite low estrogen levels, like Castor Semenya will. And she'll physically just never put on fat and always put on muscle. 
Now, that that's not wrong. So what you'll find, and I get in trouble for saying this, most women who will win combat sport titles will naturally have the highest level of testosterone. You will not see these women with low test winning anything. So what do you say now? Do you just say, well, sorry, ladies, some women are more equal than others. You know, it's not an accident that in most strength and power sports, there is a high proportion of lesbians that win these things. And it's an uncomfortable truth, but there's a high proportion of lesbians that win this. Where did the sexuality come from? Well, no, no, but we have to ask, I mean, these are all legitimate questions where you've got to look at it and you've got to say, is there a correlation? Well, are we going to work backwards and go, maybe they all have higher testosterone levels? I don't know. It's, It's a question. It's not me saying it's good or it's bad. It's me going, do we need to investigate what's really going on in female sport? Because if you've got a daughter... You don't want to say to your daughter, well, based on your testosterone level, you're really unlikely to make it in boxing. Don't care how skillful you are. I'll just take this shovel away from you now, Terry. And we'll move on to <laughs> your fight conception. Martin, please don't <laughs> say something normal. All right, so uh, conception forfeited his title before the bell even rang um, by coming in was it two and a half, three pounds overweight. Which shows an absolute lack of discipline, possibly a lack of care. That was reflected in the fight entirely. Yafai took him to pieces. Whether that's because Cal Yafai is that good or because Conception was just that ill-prepared. Who knows, really? Um, either way, you have to give massive props to Yafai. Um, wow, he absolutely... He won every round of that for me. Like, at a canter as well. And he was saying in his interview afterwards that he... Um, uh, he didn't really feel like he was doing enough, perhaps. But he was doing more than enough when you were watching it. Everything. Beating him to the jab, just movement. He was, at times, just almost playing with him. This conception who has been in at world level. Yafai who hasn't. And there was something about Yafai last night that he... You know, whether you're going to say that he can make it up at the, the real elite level and go in with the, the quadras and the likes at uh, that way, who knows? But... On the other hand, last night, if that, you know, if that conception turned up was as good as he's been in the past, then you fire something special, and I'd like to see him, you know, move on and get the opportunity to prove that. Uh, Terry, have <laughs> <laughs> well, we got it lined up for us now? <laughs> um, so there's a massive misconception that you can come to the UK seven days before a fight and you'll fight at your best. I just don't believe you can travel across time zones with that little preparation time. You have to, if you see Carl Frampton and the McGuigan camp, they will fly over relatively early to adjust and acclimatise and get back to their natural routine. I think Conception came over and did what Paul Smith did. Didn't come over with enough time. Didn't really get adjusted to the foods that he'd have to consume while he was here or he didn't bring his own food. So his body couldn't adjust and he couldn't make the weight. I don't think he was being unprofessional. I think he got caught off guard. Um, that being said, he wasn't as good as Eddie Hearn was making up. There was nothing I saw. It, it, you know, sometimes you can watch a boxer and their head knows what to do and their body just doesn't want to. You know, like I always call it the Sugar Ray principle because it was like watching Sugar Ray versus Terry Norris in 1991 where you knew Sugar Ray Leonard knew exactly what to do to avoid getting hit, but just his body couldn't respond. And it looked like that with, looked like that with conception. I don't think he was that good. I think Yafai is a lot better than we've given him credit for. 
which I blame Eddie Hearn for entirely because you're supposed to have been testing this guy. You know, he's been a pro for four years. You know, you could have tested your fight at a higher level by now. And, you know, we're now finding out how good he is. And he's the third Beijing Olympian now to win a world title. So you had James DeGale, Billy Joe Saunders, and now Yafai. Um, the problem you're going to have is that Hearn has criticised um, Birmingham fans before for not coming out and supporting their fighters, not buying tickets. Yafai is a Birmingham fighter. What are they going to do with him? Because there isn't that marketplace for him in Birmingham. Um unless they can get him there and put the rematch of Gavin versus Eggington on the undercard for his first defence. Why? <laughs> but what else are you going to do? There isn't enough boxing talent in Birmingham. There isn't enough an appetite in that marketplace. It's, it's interesting because I posed this question to Steve Bunce a while ago, and I said, can you name me a Sheffield boxer who was a big seller in Sheffield? Even Naz had to leave Sheffield to, to sell. You know, there's certain parts of the country that just aren't fight cities. Yeah. Sheffield, one of them. You consider how many boxers have come out of Sheffield and they can't sell out the the Sheffield News Arena or whatever it's called now. Motor point. Yeah. They can't sell it out. You know, you end up fighting in, in whatever that, that Magnus Centre in Rotherham because, you know, that's the one you can fill out. And then it's probably the same problem in Birmingham. It's definitely the same problem in Bristol where the number of boxers they produce does not reflect the number of tickets they can sell. So just then, just to satisfy my curiosity, top five fighting cities in the UK then? London, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds. Glasgow. I mean, that's Cardiff. fine. Cardiff. I'd, I'd go with Glasgow more than Cardiff. Like, Glasgow get behind Burns, don't they? It's uh, They'll sell out that um, SSE or whatever it is up in uh, the Scottish Hydro up there for a relatively past it Burns still. Yeah. So there uh, is between Cardiff and Glasgow for that last spot. But, yeah. But more or less, you're not really selling outside of there. And, and that's the problem. You know, I think Eddie did try to create local stars in local areas, but he realized actually there's just certain places where tickets will be bought and there are places where tickets won't be bought. Okay. So it's come to that time where we have covered all of the, um, other fights and now we've got to move on we'll move on to friend of the podcast Davey Allen versus Ortiz how did he get on um <laughs> it's a hard one like David Allen was never going to win that fight and I think when you saw how David Allen was boxing you knew he wasn't going to win that fight but what he did was showed that Ortiz isn't as good as people say he is he showed that if you nurtured David Allen correctly and had him at area level, which is where he should be now, then he would be doing perfectly fine. And you just, to me, I felt sorry for him by the end of it, that you just felt like somebody, get an arm around him, get him out of that ring, like, yeah, he got stopped in the seventh round, get him out of that ring, go and take him to a gym, settle him down with a trainer, get him the right promoter and build him from the bottom to the top he can skip the first seven, eight fights that a career would have, but start him again, essentially, and build him at that area level. Ortiz couldn't lay a glove properly on him um, for the first few rounds. So Ortiz, probably, to be fair to him, wasn't in you know sixth gear for this fight. He was probably taking it a little bit easy. He was, you know, this is meant to be, you know, probably one of the top two or three heavyweights on the planet. And he was fighting on the free part of the pay-per-view, for fuck's sake. Like, what are they doing with him? 
their matchroom. So they brought him over from fighting Bryant Jennings in America to fighting Malik Scott and now fighting a man from Doncaster on the free element of a pay-per-view. Like, if I'm Luis Ortiz, I'm querying what the hell that bit of paperwork is that I've signed with Eddie Hearn. Um, but Ortiz, look, he can clearly hit hard. He, if you see the photos of David Allen's tongue where it split, I think that was in the third round. Um, it was pretty vicious, but Allen, it was the right thing to stop that fight. No doubt about it whatsoever. But Allen could have seen that fight out, I believe, until the end of the eighth round, um, from a less compassionate referee. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they should have let it go on. I'm just saying he could have seen that fight out. It kind of, to me, again, it blew apart a little bit the myth of Luis Ortiz. And I feel like that's just coming undone a little bit more every time we see him on a UK show. So including that Monaco one, because it was a matchroom one. There's something that's not quite right. There's something that's not quite the, the real deal about Ortiz. And whether that's because if we'd have seen him hitting his peak four or five years ago, it would probably be a different fighter to what he is right now. I don't know. Um, but I think it's probably quite likely that they just don't know what to do with him. Now that they've signed him, what what do you actually do with him? Because, you know, AJ's now got his next fight lined up. Um, chances are, if AJ comes through Klitschko, then they put him in with Ortiz, because Ortiz can still carry that reputation through until next year, uh, without actually probably being as good as we all feared he was. Do we think that... Is it possible that Eddie Hearn has promised to pay Ortiz a flat rate or a certain amount over a period of fights so Ortiz really wouldn't care what fights he was in as long as he fulfilled that contract? Probably, like a holding fee, essentially. I think they've probably paid him a holding fee to keep him for Joshua for back end of next year or something. So whether Joshua's got a title or not is you get Ortiz, you know, we'll pay you one and a half million quid for an 18-month contract or something like that to keep him on the, the Joshua radar with or without a title. So what did you think, Terry, to the fight? I think Martin summarised the fight pretty well. What I will say is, and I know he listens to the podcast, Dave Allen can call me, sit him down, we'll put a plan in place because I'm not the most experienced. I don't have grey hair, a grey beard and a tracksuit. But I saw enough in Dave Allen to go, this guy really could do a lot of damage. Um, I'm a big fan of multi-dimensional boxers. I like guys who can move their head across multiple different planes. They can have the head high to draw shots. They can dip, they can slip, they can roll. Dave Allen can do all of that. You know, all someone needs to do is sit him down, you know, have a couple of months, sharpen up his footwork. Once his feet start sliding in and out of range, step two, then start to bring those shots in after every good defensive move. Because had he been able to slip, and as he's slipping to his right, let left hook go, Ortiz would have been confused as hell. I, 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 I watched Dave Allen fight and he did so many clever things. He's a very old school style fighter where he uses his whole body as a defensive shield. I don't think he was hit clean that often in the first five rounds. And that's a massive achievement for Dave Allen because he didn't look in the shape he needed to be to fight Ortiz. So... Dave Allen can get hold of me. I know I have the plan. I, I could write it out in an hour and he'd he'd see significant results because I really want this guy to to take off. I think he's he's an incredible talent, defensively especially. And it's just tweaking those elements and saying, well, actually, if you're serious about this, as Carl Froch said, Dave Allen needs to show he's serious about this, stay at his natural fighting weight, stay in the gym, 
um, probably less sparring actually because he did box a bit like a sparring partner in there. I'd like to see him being the killer in the ring. Um, it'll be interesting, like like him sparring someone like a David Hay would be really really good for him because I think that would bring him on leaps and bounds. Um, but yeah, really impressed with him. Luis Ortiz, let's break Ortiz down as a boxer. He has the slowest feet I've seen <laughs> on a supposed Cuban boxer. But he has incredibly fast hands. So this is a very strange thing about Ortiz. So Ortiz will move into range really slowly. But when he lets his hands go, they're lightning fast. And I think that's the legacy of he's a man who's boxed up the weights. Let's go back to a few podcasts ago. We talked about the 2005 World Cup for amateur boxing. And Ortiz was in the same team as Yuri Orcas Gamboa. And he boxed as a 91 kilo fighter. And he looked fleshy then. You imagine he was somewhere between 81 and 91. So he's not naturally a big man. And you can see that in the ring. He's not naturally big. His arms are quite skinny and his midsection is quite fleshy. So he, he's got that middle-aged look about him already. And what that means is he's playing in a weight division that might not necessarily suit him. And if we threw him in with a David Price, I'd like to see him take a David Price right hand flush on the face and then we'd see how, how tough he was. But I've always thought, I think you've heard me say this before, I've always thought Luis Ortiz is overrated. I thought the win against Jennings, you know, Jennings isn't really a barometer because Jennings isn't a natural boxer. Tony Thompson was grossly overweight. He came into that fight at about 271 pounds, which is well over the weight he was for David Price, for example. So let's really, look, Ortiz is a hype job until until he beats someone seriously. I'd sooner they'd given the opportunity to Shannon Briggs, to be honest with you. Yeah, it'd be nice to see um, Alan, given his courage and clear ambition with the last couple of fights that he's taken, I would really love to see him um, step back, improve and come back with a renewed sense of vigour and maybe, you know, maybe improve to a point where he is a genuine threat in that division. I'll make the fight. The fight, the fight he wants is Domek and Lardy. The fight Dom wants is Dave Allen. You know I mean, Tommy Dove, make the fight happen. That fight will be one for the purest in terms of you've got two guys who are very old school. It will be like watching a heavyweight fight from 1963 and it will be highly entertaining. Two two tough men, two guys, you know, who just want to advance in the sport. You could stick him in with him. You could stick him in with Nathan Gorman, Con Sheen. All of these guys, I think, should be fighting each other in the, in the heavyweight division because they're all trying to run around, scramble around for titles. Just look. Let them fight each other, make a good living, because they'll all be entertaining fights. Okay, let's move on to what was effectively probably the fight of the night. I don't think there's any probably about it. Chisora White. Uh, one, well, okay, what would you call it? One for the purists, one for the um, Slogfest fans, one for... One know, for everyone. That, <laughs> that fight is what a pay-per-view headlining fight should be. That is exactly what you want. If someone had said, here, you've got to pay £16 for a pay-per-view and the fight will feel a bit like this one, you'd pay 16 quid. Why? Because you had two guys and one's on the way down, one is definitely on the way up. But they met at that right point in their careers where they were competitive enough for each other. Eddie could learn this when matching guys like AJ and Callum Smith. You need those type of fights. And what happened was, you can ignore all the nonsense that came beforehand, you know, I'm sure that's been discussed to death, but what happened in that ring, you saw a guy in Chisora 
at 32 years old trying to box like he was 27 and realizing he didn't have it in the tank anymore. You know, he went to the well once too often. And you had a guy in Dillian White who showed, you know, because we're a year on from Joshua White now. And he's shown that he's found a new level. Um, Thoroughly enjoyed the fight. I like what Chisora did where he wanted to empty out the Dillian White tank in the first half of the fight and then see what he had in the second half. You know, in boxing, they call it old manning your opponent. So Chisora played the wily old veteran, you know, particularly towards the end of the fight where he just sit against the ropes, cover up, you know, get a quick breather and then try and impress the judges towards the end, knowing that the judges more or less score around on what happened in the last minute, not the first. But I was impressed with what Dillian White brought to the table. He's still got, he's got a defense that's pieces of different elements of his career. So he's got a lot of the Domac and Lardy look, you know, slipping with your hands, you know, that, that, that sort of multi-layered defense. He's got the same, you know, what he picked up from Ian Lewison, the ability to, to slip while being stood upright. But he's also got that Mark Tibbsness, you know, that, that gritty East End defensive style as well. What he hasn't been able to do is knit those all into one consistent defensive pattern. So hopefully he'll figure that out. But, you know, I look at Dillian White and I say, you could have a year where he just fights all those American hype jobs over there and takes them all out and then calls out Deontay Wilder. And I think Dillian beats all of them and gives Wilder all kinds of trouble because it's going to be hard to stop him. So you think Dillian White has seriously improved since he fought Joshua? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. His his level of boxing intelligence is a lot higher now. Um, he could have learned a bit from Andy Ruiz. Like how Andy Ruiz boxes on the inside as a heavyweight, I think is exemplary. I think when Dillian tightens up that work on the inside, you know, starting to rip uppercut through to the chin, straight into a left hook, back into an uppercut, he'll start starching people and he'll start starching really good people. And I'm, I am excited because, you know, look at him now. He's up in Loughborough. He's at Loughborough University. That's where he does his training camps now, which shows that he's investing in his future. You know, he's got the you know best sports facilities outside of Team GB. You know, he has no excuse for not reaching world level now. Do, so do you think in a year's time, given the improvements he's made in the last year, he can be a genuine threat to the division? Um, so let's, let's, let, let's talk about ranked fighters. I think he beats Shannon Briggs. Um, yeah, but, that, but we, as a as a regular sort of fan, you're not you're you're sort of like worry, wondering if he's ever going to be up there challenging. I don't know how long Klitschko is going to go on, but Klitschko, Wilder, AJ, with you with him going into those fights, and you thinking, he, he, like it's a fifty fifty kind of thing, you know. So, so Wilder's had thirty odd fights. Dillian hasn't. Um, AJ's been in an elite environment since two thousand and ten. You know, Dillian hasn't. David Hayes been boxing since he was eleven. Dillian hasn't. We we need to place him. I'd like to see him fight Brazil. Let him deal with all of these guys at like Brazil: Jarrell Miller, Gerald Washington Jr., Otto Valen, um, even Pulev. Let 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 him let him clean up that second tier. By then, he would have had twenty five, twenty six fights. Then step him up. There's no point in rushing Dillian before he's ready because he's still working on things, and you can see that in the fight. He still needs that experience, that seasoning to know how to manage a 12-round fight, which Chisora nearly did perfectly. You know, he, he knew, if, it, if I don't have 12 rounds in me, let me at least take all the energy out of Dillian White as well. And then it just became the last three rounds were just, who wants it more? What does Derek Chisora do now? Uh, you'd hope, maybe, we'll see a rematch of that fight. 
Um, but we're not going to see it for a long time. Those two went to a dark place in that fight. That was uh, incredible. Incredible. Like, <laughs> those two have taken some serious punishment, both of them out of that. And, you know, hopefully there's a respect that possibly wasn't there beforehand. Um, where does Derek go to it after that? As I say, you, who wouldn't want to see a rematch of that? Now, they'll be stuck in a very uh, difficult position to make that rematch because the most logical place would be on the undercard of Hey Bellew or on the undercard of Joshua Klitschko. Um, but it's going to cost a lot of money to make that rematch and there probably isn't going to be the budget to do so. And you can't make a pay-per-view out of those two fighting alone because they're not at that level. So it's probably too much money for Saturday fight night now. It probably wasn't before Saturday night. Um, so Chisora, I don't know. Uh, I don't know where you go with him, really. You don't want to see him going back out into the European backwaters and fighting nobodies. He's still obviously got something to offer the sport. Now, I'll take that fight from a slightly different um, perspective than Terry. So disagree with me at any point on this one, Terry, and I'd be more than happy um, like go through it. But to me, it, <laughs> to me, it maybe showed that Dillian White isn't everything that we hope he is. Um, on the basis that, look, that is a Chisora very much in decline. We know he's on decline. He's been in decline for about three years. He still managed to, you know, he as much as he may be in decline, he pulled it back up a bit on Saturday night. But that's still not a peak Derek Chisora by any means. But look at what David Hay did to a peak Derek Chisora. And he, you know, yes, he got hurt by him, but he also smashed him. Um, look at what Klitschko at his peak did to Derek Chisora. He beat him. Chisora caused him issues throughout that fight, and it wasn't a one-way um, bit of traffic. But Dillian White went tooth and nail with Derek Chisora, a Derek Chisora who is now three, four years past his best. To me, it actually says the op opposite about Dillian White, that perhaps, I'm not saying he couldn't go over to America and take apart those, you know, the likes of Briazil, Charles Martin, Baby Miller, whoever else, because as we've seen when they've come over here, they don't stand up to their reputation. Um, so let's see White go and do that. But I say to me, it actually possibly raises more question marks about how good Dillian White is based on the fact that we know what level Derek Chisora is and they fought to within one point across three cards. So it may be a contentious view on it, but uh, what do you reckon? So what Derek came in at 17 stone 12. I was okay with that. I'd like him to come in at 17-5, 17-6, and he would have been far more mobile and energetic. But look, this is the guy who, who's walked into fights at 19 stone something. So we knew he was taking it seriously. Um, I knew having just having brief Facebook chats with Don Charles, Derek was focused and motivated for this one. This might have been Derek, and you heard me say earlier, he was he just went to that, that well. I think everyone has that fight in him. Ali had it with Frazier, in Manila, 1975, where it's your all-or-nothing moment. You know that's you're going to put everything into this, and you're not going to give up in this fight. And a last hurrah. Yeah, and I think that's what Chisora did. He knew this was his. It was his last show on the big stage. Deep down, you know, definitely on the on a UK card, and he gave it everything. And that's a better Chisora than than the one that fought Pulev. That, in terms of boxing intelligence and where he was putting his punches that was probably at that level or slightly below 
where he was when he fought David Hay, just not as mobile. I think that was a big mistake. There wasn't the mobility, and I think that's what drained his tank. But it comes back, it comes to this point. How why can't these guys get in shape? I don't understand it. <laughs> you know, your yeah, I was about to athlete. ask you actually. Was that? Do you think that was an intentional decision to be slightly heavier? Look, Dillian White should be coming in about sixteen twelve to about seventeen one. Derek should be coming in about sixteen ten. There's no excuse for it. You know, you're carrying all this extra timber for no reason, just because you don't have to make weight. You know, all of those guys were. If you offer them ten million pounds to box a cruiserweight, they'd all make cruiserweight. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, it seems like the most logical place to move on from here is AJ versus Molina. Well, I guess it is kind of AJ versus Molina, but it's subsequently gonna turn into the Klitschko AJ announcement. But let's start with the fight first. How did you see it? So we're starting with uh AJ Molina. So <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I thought Joseph Parker boxed quite well. Andy Ruiz is well out of shape. Uh, he should have been in better shape than that. Uh, but Joseph Parker boxed well off the back foot. Andy Ruiz just doesn't throw enough punches when he gets into the space. And, you know, there you go. There's your world champion, Joseph Parker, WBO. Fuck the AJ fight. It's a waste of time. Next. What did you think about it, Terry? Um, so I found the fight quite interesting. So we go back to a year ago, we had almost AJ version one and McCracken unleashed AJ version two in this fight. Now, to many, the difference isn't that pronounced, but there were some small things I noticed. So if you go back to a year ago, AJ was just bludgeoning you with one twos. You get the occasional hook, but it wasn't of any standard or any quality. You know, it was just bang, 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 bang until you gave up. And what it meant was he took a lot more shots coming in than, you know, than he did in this fight. Now, Melina was tailor-made for him because what Melina, Melina's thing is, bell goes, I'm going to get you on the ropes, cover up, tuck up, fine, you know, dip a little bit, counter. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep countering you and I'm going to catch you eventually. And when I wobble you, then I'll take you out. But the problem with that style is it relies on you having pretty good footwork. And I, I invite anyone to go back and watch that fight. Just watch the legs. Don't watch the upper bodies. AJ's legs are always engaged. And what I mean by that is there's always tension in one or other of his legs, which means he can always move. Now, Molina was walking with relatively stiff legs. His knees look locked most of the time, which means when AJ starts shooting forward, you have to loosen up and then start moving. And by then it's too late. So over those three rounds, what you saw was a standard AJ performance. Get him onto the ropes and then batter him. You know, what was the first punch AJ threw in anger? It was a right hook to the body, which is something Foreman used to do. And the reason most boxers, if you have, if you back your power, you'd throw that punch because number one, it almost always lands. And secondly, no matter where it hits, whether it hits your arm or your ribs, the other person then goes, shit, that's a pretty hard punch. And it's, 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 it's a form of intimidation. And I think once Melina felt that, he was intimidated. And then you had just rounds of Melina saying, I refuse to engage, even though AJ gave him the space to engage. And uh, we're going to get onto this in the Klitschko discussion. Great boxers control space. And what's that space? The space is the distance between your head and my head. No, a great boxer like Klitschko will control it. Even, even if he's fainting or if he's pulling that jab, what he's doing is he's saying, you can't take a step forward because there might be something here for you. If you don't do that with AJ, you're going to get taken out. And that's why AJ avoids people like Tyson Fury, 
who can control the space. David Hay, who can control the space. Molina refused to control the space. Instead, he just had his hands up. And the problem was, his head wasn't moving where his hands were. So AJ just kept bludgeoning him. And in the end, he just took him out. Um, I thought Molina was poor. He has zero footwork. And against AJ, if you don't have footwork, you're a punch bag. I thought AJ was good. I saw a little bit of head movement, which is progress. You know, he's dealing with people who want to dip under the right hand now by coming low with the left hook and the left uppercut and then coming high with it. You know, all of these small details that are slowly coming together. And one of the things I did like about AJ was when he missed the punch, instead of just retreating, he was using his arm to then pin his opponent. So anytime Molina dropped his head, AJ just put his forearm over his neck. And if he had him down with the left hand, he'd throw a right uppercut. If he had him down with the right hand, he'd throw a left uppercut. And that sort of control is what you need. You know, these, these are small veteran moves that AJ's picking up now, which makes him a more interesting proposition. He's still beatable, but he's getting less beatable. Can I throw in there as well? My highlight of the uh, the entire fight was at the end of the first round where, um, you know, Sky Camera gets in there in the corner and Rob McCracken steps between the ropes. And then there's a brilliant shot of, like, up into AJ's corner. So from underneath him, you've got Rob McCracken then stood kind of to the left-hand side of the camera angle. And in the background is Tony Sims with his little cap on and, like... Oh, look, <laughs> he just thought, you've been fucking kicked out of this entirely. Like, you're, you're still there as a token effort. I bet you in a year's time, he's not going to be in that corner whatsoever. And it just reminded me, the way that he was looking on really forlornly at, like, AJ and McCracken and the relationship they have. So, like, imagine if, you know, your uncle gets left by his wife at Christmas or whatever, and then she starts <laughs> bringing along a new bloke, but like they've all got to turn up at the same family do, and like your uncle's <laughs> your uncle's still really missing her, and oh, I've got to look on at these two like in a really tight relationship. They're necking off in front of each <laughs> other. He's got his hand up her top, down her skirt, whatever. <laughs> and, family function. Yeah, come to one of our family function, amazing. And then you've got. <laughs> You've got Sims looking on. Uncle Lenny fingering Auntie Trish. (laughs) (laughs) And you've got Tony Sims just with a little tear in his eye. (laughs) Flat cap on. It was magical. It was magical. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, (laughs) There ain't no way to go from there. Right. So then AJ knocks out Molina in fairly quick fashion and earns me £25. Nice. Um, Yeah. I'm... And anyway, and then we moved on to... Um, this is my confession. Can you, I make my confession oh, now? <laughs> uh, straight after the bell, like, I fucking turned that shit off because I was so offended by how bad that fight was. And then only 10 minutes later, when like I'm sat flicking through Twitter, I'm like, AJ Klitschko coming up. <laughs> I didn't watch that announcement. You're going to talk now about how stiff Klitschko looked, etc. I was so pissed off by the whole AJ situation that my TV got turned off the moment the ref counted to 10. It was a shambles. And yeah, so well done to Eddie Hearn, though, because he managed to book Wembley and sign Klitschko to a contract within, what, like two minutes from... You know, that bell sounding and the result being announced to then the next fight being announced because he knew Molina was a threat because he told us that all the way through the build up. <laughs> wait, 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 so, wait, wait. And do the poster. And do the poster, yeah, because that went out immediately as well. Mm. Because he knew Molina was a threat because he told us that. And that's the only way you're going to get someone like Molina on a pay per view. 
you know, because he's, he's a such threat. a threat, you need that pay-per-view money for him. But I, I did ask whether Eddie Hearn did actually put rounds one to three, seeing if he was the guy that <laughs> said Molina would never last three rounds with Joshua. So, no, I just want to congratulate Eddie Hearn personally um, for being able to move so swiftly in ringing. Because it's hard to get reception in the O2 as well sometimes because there's so many people. It makes a network really difficult to get hold of. Probably use walkie-talkie. Yeah, but to get Wem- to get Wembley to get Wembley out of hours, get him on the phone, book the stadium, quickly write the Klitschko contract, yeah. and then get him in the ring because he happens to be it's like impressive. It's really well done, Eddie. So you know, from me personally, <laughs> well done, son. Was um, this announcement absolutely crucial given Chisora White had just happened and? Had AJ dispatched Molina in such convincing fashion, and there, which he would have done, and there wasn't an announcement, then it would have been a bit sort of. They were always going to do this, like yeah. like Eddie. He'd always said, "This is when we're going to make the announcement. Um, we've got a surprise for you. Apples and pears, you know the usual." But what does this really mean? I, I my sense is the fight's not going to happen in April. Um, for a number of reasons. Number one, think about this. You buy a ticket, even one for the for the bleachers, you know, and you're at probably ninety ninety five quid for that ticket. If it pisses it down and it's just a wank atmosphere and it's crap, you're going to regret being there. I don't care who you are. This is the sort of fight where if you're not ringside, it's going to be crap. So if I if I'm if I can't get ringsides, I'm just watching it. There's no point. I'm watching it in a pub with some mates, some boxing mates or whatever you know, the New Age boxing crew. In fact, look, let's put it out there today. Let's do it. Let's all let's all go to the fight. Everyone that listens to this that can get to Wembley, let's all go to the let's fight. Let's all go to the fight. Let's all... Apart from me, because it's my daughter's birthday that day and I forgot about <laughs> it when I suggested it to my wife. <laughs> she wasn't amused when I came down and said to her about the date and then she said, are you going? I said... Nah, I don't really get very good. I'd rather watch it at home or whatever. She went, yeah, the correct answer is it's your daughter's birthday that day. <laughs> Shit. When I read that tweet, I thought, that doesn't surprise me at all, if I'm honest. <laughs> but look, ring size will be great. It, it'll be a great occasion if the weather, if the weather holds up. It'll be a fantastic To be fair, if you, sit, if you sit in the commoner's seat, which is you know, were I to go there, the most likely place that I'd be sitting anyway, and probably most people listening to this podcast would be sitting, you don't get wet if it rains because you're undercover. So, uh, so I, I need to be ringside sat next yeah. to Spencer Fearon and Darren Barker. In which case, you may <laughs> Sorry, well get... Then, you know, that's the, then we, look, wherever Spencer is, the sun always shines. It's cool. <laughs> so we're all good with that. Out of his own arse, apparently. But Joshua Klitschko, I just don't see it happening in April. AJ, look, AJ's just boxed. Which means he then has to have Christmas off. Then you're on camp from January. Okay, fine. You're on camp from January. You're going to box in April. You've got to box in the summer because that's prime matchroom time, right? So he's got to box again in the summer. Yeah, but he's humble enough to do that. But there's only so much you can put your body through. Hungry. (laughs) There's only so much you can put your body through. And if he does beat Klitschko, the expectation would be he has to fight someone of a Ortiz or Hay caliber. So yeah. you're back in camp almost immediately. When does this guy get to rest? They're, they're flogging him. And we don't realise it now, but they're flogging him. He could well suffer with burnout eventually. Definitely. Can, mentally, anyway. It was only last... No, it's like this year. After the Briazil fight um, that Hearn said about the fact that he was worn out, he was burnt out, and he needed that break. 
from boxing for a he's, few yeah, years. He's not about that life. Right. Look, AJ Klitschko, fantastic, right? It, it, it's an event. Isn't much of a fight. It's much like White Chisora, where you're hoping Klitschko on the way down, Joshua on the way up, meet in that sweet spot, which will give us a back and forth fight over a number of rounds. And then what we'll say is Joshua's a legitimate champion. Yada, 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 yada. But I'll be glad because then people have to say, you got to fight someone now, right? You know, because we've said it week after week on this show. He's the matchroom cash cow, but I don't think he generates that much revenue for matchroom. You know, for being realistic, I think he generates a lot of money for Anthony Joshua and quite rightly too, because he deserves it. You know, you look at the guy, the guy's never out of shape. You think... A six foot six, 17 and a half stone man that's never out of shape. And we can allude to all kinds of, you know, negative practices that have been alleged, but you still have to control that <clears throat> diet. You still have to eat the right things, do yeah, the right that's things. True, yeah. And and he's putting himself on the line for this. I just think he, he risks suffering mental burnout. Just getting to a point where he just can't, he, he just can't motivate himself anymore. That's definitely, you know. I agree. A, a realistic. I think he'll have a Scott Quigg moment. If he loses, he'll have a Scott Quigg moment where it all just collapses around. Can I just like you said about um, Ortiz? Hey, well, realistically, could he not um, line up Joseph Parker were he to beat Klitschko? Would that not be an uh, an easier fight than Hay? There's a cue. So Parker's one. He has 120 days to negotiate with. I think it's Huey Fury. So he has 120 days to negotiate with Huey Fury to then defend that title. So, so so unless you pay Huey Fury a few million in step-aside money, you have no chance of getting Parker. So Huey Fury is the mandatory? It would appear so. I thought it was David Hay, but it appears that it's Huey Fury. And then if Huey wins, if Huey Fury wins, then he'll fight David Hay. So David, David's in the mix for the WBO and he's in the mix for the WBA at the moment. It'd be nice if David Hay actually at some point comes relevant in 2017 because at the moment he seems to be sort of... His commentary taking... was relevant last night. John, I know you're listening. His commentary was more than relevant last night. He know? just kept saying Bellend. <laughs> Which is what was needed. Didn't you say Tony Bellend was trending on Twitter at one point? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it seems like he's taking the Bellew fight just to sort of mark time, make some money out of it. But I'd like to see him become relevant... Well, relevant in the heavyweight division. He might be a threat, but no one seems to want to fight him of any repute. Well, let, let's think about why. It can't be down to money. David Hay generates revenue. Any fight he's in is revenue. Yeah, so it's the threat, isn't it's it? It's fear. Hmm. You, you know what happens when he hits you. People fall over. doesn't matter how big you are, you fall over. So why would people take that risk where you could fight a Shannon Briggs, for example, so for more or less the same money? When does he become... Um, mandatory in these in these like soon like only the WBO that he's close to being mandatory IBF he's just behind Pulev in the queue right so 2017 should at least see him towards the end of that either looking at a world title shot if Pulev were to pull a hamstring now keep him out for six months or so Hay would then become the mandatory for Anthony Joshua right should be interesting an interesting 2017 coming up can I just throw out two things about this Klitschko fight with AJ? Um, the first is, I know that we often get accused, or I personally, by quite a lot of people, get accused of being very negative. Like, great fight, and you know Matchroom will turn that into an event. They will turn it into a spectacle. It will look phenomenal if it goes ahead on that date, as we all hope it does. 
you know, it is the old thing Toby was saying about the person on the way up against the person on the way down. And that is just such a brilliant thing for British boxing. I hope there's enough money left to make some kind of undercard on it. We shall see. But you know that main event is going to be worthwhile. The second point of it is, I hope for every fan out there who said that Klitschko was so piss poor against Fury, could not throw a punch, is scared, is shot, etc., I hope you stick to that same story if Joshua beats him. Because I'm sure there will be a number of 180s out there that if Joshua does go out and takes Klitschko apart, those people will be making Klitschko into the monster of the heavyweight division, forgetting about the grief that they gave him when Fury picked him apart. What I would say is based on Klitschko's ring announcement skills last night, he is literally made of wood now. (laughs) He can't... You obviously wouldn't have seen this because you uh, no. you turned off through sheer disgust. Do you know what I was hoping during that announcement? I was hoping Shannon Briggs was going to storm the ring and go, mm. I ain't forgotten. Well, that would have been at least something. It was like, do you guys want to see a good fight? <laughs> and then everyone was like, yeah. And he was like, I can't hear you. And then a face, like, it was meant to be a really smile, but it back. almost it almost looked like he was having a stroke or something. And then... Then there was this really awkward sort of silence in the crowd. There was like one or two people going, yeah. It's because half of them are probably left by this point. <laughs> yeah. It's like one in the morning. I can't hear you. Tell me again. It was, you it know was the painful. Highlight of that was, it was Shannon Briggs trying to grab David Hayes' hair. So, so Briggs is in the audience. This is hilarious. Briggs is in the audience and Hayes walking down with the security. And all you see is you see, you see the, the red cap just shooting towards the security, trying to grab David Hayes' hair. <laughs> oh, on that note, can we also give a, uh, a criticism to Tony Bellend about when uh, he was mouthing off at Hay whilst Luke Blackledge was getting stretched out of the ring or getting the paramedics looking after him? Classy. Yeah, and then you've got <laughs> Bellew stood like mouthing off at Hay down at ringside because they were both working for, I think, Five Live and Sky, respectively. Uh, I just thought, one absolute prick. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> um. Yeah, so then what I've also found a bit odd and frustrating was then AJ and uh, Klitschko then proceeded to walk around the ring, sort of like revving up the crowd, like, yeah, we're going to have a fight. They may as well have been hand in hand skipping around the ring. It was just painful. And then it was, I put it on Twitter, didn't I? Something, and, and you came back, Terry, and said, <laughs> business partners. And I thought, oh, this frustrates me so much. Yeah, but, but, but look, this fight's been mooted for so long that. AJ's like, how can I hate the man who's about to give me 10 million quid? And Klitschko's like, how can I hate the man who's about to give me 15 million quid? Because obviously the guy passing the torch gets the most money. So, but can we just get, I just want us to get this over and done with. Klitschko is not relevant to me in the heavyweight division. We know we know who AJ should fight. There are three names. Wilder, Vitaly, Klitschko. Hey, that's it. You know, but the problem you have is he could yeah. do all those fights in a year and a half, and then that's it. It's over. the The AJ Gravy train is over. So they'll milk this for as long as they can, and they're praying that Fury takes his time coming back. <laughs> that's an extremely depressing outlook. How, no, how good did Fury look? Uh, just just watching Fury at that that event just shows you know what real boxing people love Tyson Fury. You know all the liberals, all the fucking guardian readers who are like this guy is such a horrible monster my god he's a traveler he's he said this he said that he's horrible he's horrible and you know when he shows up at a boxing show even shannon briggs was like oh i love you man 
And just to see that, and also just to see the fact that he's so big now, his waistcoat doesn't button up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he gave up after the first button. He completely gave up. But it was great seeing him. And I, look, you just bring, bring Fury back to the ring because everyone gets an extra half million quid in their pocket when Fury's involved. Speaking of Fury, going back to burnout, has he had burnout? And will he do, you know, can we sort of speculate on the possibility of him not coming back. He'll, so, look, ev- everyone in the Fury camp says he'll fight again. Um, they've got him some medication, which I think manages the, the ups and the downs a bit better. I think he's just chilling out at the moment and just waiting for that, you know, to get sufficiently irritated with what's going on in the world to come back. He's a fighting man. He's said it so many times. What the hell would he do if he wasn't a fighting man? Do you see what I mean? So I, I think he, he will come back. The problem was, let, let's remember... He beat Vladimir Klitschko, the guy that was like, do you know how many rounds will Fury last? Do you remember that? That was it. How many rounds will Fury last? And he made it look easy. And he comes back to this country and he's vilified. And he's not vilified because he's the worst of the worst, because my goodness, there are far worse people there. He's vilified because he refuses to toe the line. He wants to be himself. He does say inflammatory things, though, doesn't he? But who doesn't? Like, look, 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 you know, we complain, right? We complain that AJ is just a walking cardboard cutter because, you know, he knows what marks to hit in every interview, in every occasion. He conducts himself in that way where he, like, is too good to be true. And then we have the guy that we say we wish AJ was, and then we vilify him as well. Yeah, I think there's some... I think, I think there's definitely a space to be occupied in between them. You've got... AJ, who's just like, I'm so humble that I have given a new meaning to the word humble, and it and it gets a bit tiresome and boring. Whereas you get Fury, who says things, and you just go, oh, really? I mean, like talking about his political views on homosexuality and stuff like that. You just don't even need to say that. Why? You know, no, like, there's remember, a space he, occupied in the he middle. He doesn't have someone advising him. Like, how many people advise AJ? You can't do an interview with AJ unless it's approved by three different people. Fury doesn't have that. Fury says, listen, you want an interview? I'll walk in and let's have a conversation. Let's have a chat. <laughs> so he probably should have some so, sort of yeah, filter. But, 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 wait. but let's flip this round onto guys like Coogan Cassius. It's Coogan's responsibility to say, listen, Tyson, the thing you've said about homosexuals, you know that's going to go off. Yeah, you know. And if Tyson then says, I don't care, fair enough. But Coogan doesn't care about things like this. And then this is the issue I have, that... Someone has to protect the fighters. Like, is Coogan in this for the sport or is he in this for himself? Because he did it with Prince Patel as well, and Prince Patel's never recovered from that. And he, See, did, which was grossly unfair. I, personally, I'm, I'm all like the reason I'm saying this, but I couldn't care less what he says. I mean, like, it offends people, but they're they're quite just they're they're perfectly entitled to tune out and not watch him or whatever. What frustrates wait, wait, me is wait, when he question, comes out of these things and my, then he gets affected by the backlash. No, no, my question is, why are people getting offended? Well, that's that's what people do. You know, and this is social media for you. It gives you the, 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 the synthetic right to be annoyed. So, look, so Tyson Fury, from what I've heard, not a racist, not a homophobe. He's, he's a guy that if you go up to Team Fury to spend time with, you're like, actually, these are really good people. Dillian said it. Everyone that's been up there to train has said it. So judge a man by what he does. We all say stupid shit. Like, you know, this podcast, I said most female champions in strength sports are lesbians. Does that mean that I'm homophobic? Then. God, no. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I stand firmly behind everyone. But I'm just saying, look, this is something I have seen. You know, it doesn't define me. Jesus. He does. 
I I just I just think that if it's going if the backlash of these things is going to affect him, then he should stop. Like I, personally, I'd, I'd I'd be much more comfortable if he said these things and then just was bulletproof. But for him to say them and then and then for him to suffer from the vilification from well, the backlash. Well, no, from no, these no, wait, wait. And, they stripped his titles. They were like, listen, give us that IBF belt back. Then they were like, well, you're not going to be sports personality of the year. Then it was just like. Listen, why are we allowing this guy to make money from the sport that he loves? It wasn't like people were saying Tyson's a dick. He could have lived with that. But you started to attack this guy's livelihood. And then it was like, hey, he's just a traveler anyway. Like the, the, the shit he took was beyond the pale. And, yeah, but then and, some people would say what he said was beyond the pale. But, but wait, wait, wait. It was just dumb shit that he said. <laughs> you know, if, if he had come out and said, listen, Let's kill all homosexuals. I'll leave the charge. Then I'd be wholly against him. I'm not lying to you. I'd be wholly against him. He just said that stuff that people say when they come out of jail. You know, they've read, they've read a book or they've watched Zeitgeist and they go, you know, the Illuminati are everywhere. Um, they operate as homosexuals or reptiles and they're here to take over the world. And the reason that you're, you're okay with homosexuality is because you're a slave to the serpent race. You know, these people that come out of jail and talk, that's all bullshit. <laughs> Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> right, end of that. <laughs> yeah. Australia, by the way. Uh, yeah. Um, all right. So <laughs> what we gathered, from, what we garnered from that is that uh, Klitschko is definitely a lizard alien. That's why he can't control a ring. Illuminati. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. I, we've, we've gone an hour and 18 minutes. We haven't even tackled the questions. <laughs> well, get on with it. <laughs> We're quick fire. Listeners' questions. Right, let's talk about listeners' questions. questions. Um, Seems like a quick one to go into. Rank them. Shaz Chowdhury. Rank the heavyweights from 1 to 11. Fury, Klitschko, AJ, Hay, Briggs, Bell, U, White, Ortiz, Alan, Chisora, Oquendo. Right. Um, do you want to f- quickly fire through them as, as as best you can? All right, for me. Uh, right, let's read through these again. So Fury is always going to be number one for me. Um, right now, probably got to put uh, AJ number two, Hay number three, Klitschko number four. Uh, no, Klitschko above Hay. Sorry, switch those round. Uh, Ortiz under there, uh, and then <coughs> White, Chisora, and then Aquendo, Bellu, Briggs. Yeah, that'll do. Um, well, Bellu's not even a heavyweight. I'm not having that. <laughs> and Aquendo, uh, I don't care for. Yeah. So, um, do you want to go, Jerry? Oh, well, there's only the names we've got here. Like, there's no Parker in there or Wilder. Isn't there? That's part two, isn't it? <laughs> so, Hay one. Let's start again. Sorry, take two. Fury number one. Hay number two. AJ number three. Klitschko number four. Um, You've got Ortiz, Allen, Chisora, Quendo, Briggs. Briggs number Bellu. six. Bellu's last. <laughs> it doesn't um, matter who I'd have put in that mix. Yeah, Bellu's last. We're Alan, no, no. Gary Bell- from down the pub. Bellu's so last. Bellu's last. Okendo's before him. Allen's before him. Chisora's before him. How many have I got left? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You've got you've still got to fit in Ortiz. Is he after is he after Klitschko and White? Yeah, but before Briggs. Well, there you go. Well, I'll leave you listeners to work the rest of that exactly how you wanted it to go, because we're going to move on to question two. Which is 
Right, Martin at DBO187 on Twitter asks, when will Sky stop having friends and gym buddies commenting on friends' fights? Um, then he goes on to say, I found Moore and Macklin so biased during the Buglioni win, I had to turn off the volume. Yeah, no, I don't blame him. I'm not a fan of um, having certainly Matthew Macklin. I think he's a reasonable and respectable guy within the sport. I'd have him as a pundit, but not necessarily a commentator. Uh, easiest way around this, because you still want to get the crowd reaction, is stream it off of a foreign one. So uh, you'll find like a Ukrainian or a Russian one. You'll still get the uh, the crowd reactions, but none of the wank sky commentary. Um, I wasn't a big fan of any of it, particularly last night. So uh, yeah, no, I'm in the same boat. When will they get rid of it? Well, you know, they had a, a recent clear out and a recent flush of the uh, the commentary team. And yet, you know, as fans, we're still not necessarily happy with it. I think as long as they keep Richie Wood all away from it, then I'll always be relatively happy. <laughs> uh, Terry, second question from DBO187. Debo! Asks, how long till... Uh, it's something we approach every single week on this podcast. How long till mismatches like Smith and Blackledge lead to someone being seriously hurt? You've heard me say this week after week. At some point, someone's going to get killed in a match from show. And then that'll be the end of Boxing on Sky. And Eddie Hearn will have no one to blame but himself. You know, he he, he keeps alluding to this in, in these stupid interviews he does that serve no purpose. But he keeps saying, I'm not making any soft fights in 2017. I hope this is true because all of these guys train to fight at their best. Don't put them in with suckers because they don't enjoy it either. You know, let these guys go to that dark place. Let these guys learn and develop. You know, what did Callum Smith learn from fighting Luke Blackledge? Absolutely nothing. You may as well just have stuck him in Rocky Fielding again. Uh, Josh Tulip 9 asks... What's the de- both of you can answer this if you wish because it's uh, it's quite a good question actually. What's the definition of a stacked card and which cards have actually been stacked cards? It's a great question. Um, we hear the term so often, especially in the build-up to something like Saturday night, that it's a stacked card. Um, what do you want to have a stacked card? So you had, um, if you go back to Kelbrook Frankie Gavin last year, that was a good card. Um, Altogether, now the Kelbrook Frankie Gavin main event was awful, but the the undercard to it was relatively good. The problem that you've got is that um, you know, like let's go to Kelbrook Gennady Golovkin, where you had Lee Haskins uh, versus Stuart Hall. So, in Eddie Hearn's eyes and in Eddie Hearn's salesman perspective, you can justify that as having a world title fight on the undercard of a world title fight. So, in theory, if you would say it on you know on paper then yes, having at least one other world title fight. But I think what last night proved is that we don't want to see um, like a Jamie McDonald versus Kikachai Gadadeo from fucking Thailand or whatever. What we want to see is well-matched British fighters in there. So names that we're relatively familiar with, so the likes of Frank Buglioni, Hosea Burton, probably not so much we weren't as aware of, but that's because Matrium haven't ever exposed him. But... I want, like, to me, a stacked card. So if we took, like, um, we accept that AJ versus Klitschko isn't going to be a stacked card because they're going to be paying those two a lot of money. Um, but if you had the scenario of AJ versus Molina, for what it's worth, Molina didn't get paid an awful lot, I'm quite aware of. Um, 
you need to make that so it's got well matched. It doesn't need to be world title fights. It needs to be well matched British title fights, even English title fights. Someone like Conor Ben against someone like we said earlier, Tyler Goodjohn. That's a good fight to me. If you've got five or six well matched fights, I would far rather see that than ten hit and miss fights because that's what it was yesterday. Like I would rather we had Burton Buglioni, Chisora, um, White, Yafai Conception. Plus one other very, very good fight, rather than the whole litany of, uh, you know, overmatched opponents. I would rather at that point we had Callum Smith versus Arthur Abraham as the only other fight on that card. That, to me, makes it a better quality card than having a huge list of fights that I, I frankly don't give a shit about. Terry, in a nutshell... A stacked card, the definition of... So we don't do cards well in this country. I think we do professional cards like amateur cards with this idea that you need 12 to 15 bouts on there to justify the value. I think the Americans have it right. You know, you look at the Americans, go back to Garcia versus Morales 2, and you had guys like, I think it was Soto Karras on the undercard there. Look at Mayweather Cotto, where you had the debut of guys like Keith Thurman, you know, being tested... The Americans get it right because they realise you don't need that many fights and your pay-per-view window is quite narrow anyway. So you normally get the main event and you'll get two or three pretty well-matched fights. And then what you'll all often get is a highly touted prospect or two that sit beneath there. And that might be in the untelevised portion, but it makes for a better event. Now, the, the, the flip side of that is the American market doesn't do live events as well as we do. So maybe they're doing it wrong. I don't know. But if you look historically, you can go back to, and if you have time, do this, look at the Mayweather Canelo card and you'll go, wow, that's pretty sad. I think Thurman was on that too. So Thurman had followed Mayweather on his cards. Um, I think Garcia has been on the Mayweather card as well. Uh, you know, then Garcia goes on to, you know, headline and then someone comes under like a Soto Karras comes up under him there, you know, when Maidana and then Soto Karras had their fight. So the Americans build these. So you start off, untelevised you work way up the card and then you headline so i think they have a better structure to it we haven't got it right yet because to be honest we give eddie hearn so much stick he vacillates between one option and the other so he'll either give us hardly any fights or he'll give us loads of fights that we don't want but i don't know how we always know a card is any good after the event before we'll criticize it afterwards like actually that was an incredible card it's normally down to the boxes you know just bring your best and let's see what happens Martin, David McGinley asks, who next for Eubank, uh, which I presume means Eubank Jr., assuming he needs to move up a level now in 2017, but at the same time he won't jump to absolute elite opposition for another two to three fights, I'd guess. So, who is out there that will legitimise him enough at world level-ish, uh, but at the same time avoiding Triple G and Jacobs? Okay, um... Some interesting rumours going around about Eubank. Look them up. Um, what it tells you is that who's next for Eubank isn't going to be anyone at world level. Uh, look up the rumours. I would suspect there's an element of truth to some of it. Um, I'm not going to go into it now, but tweet me or whatever, find out. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's some strong stories going around that Eubank will uh, not be fighting somebody at world level and it will surprise a lot of people what it is okay well it seems a good place to move on from there <laughs> given last night's performance against Chisora could White at 100% shoulder 
take on AJ, Terry? This is from Sam Khan, isn't it? It is. Um, the answer is work. absolutely not. Um, Sorry, the pro- Sam. The problem... The problem... <laughs> <laughs> Look, when you match those guys, like, the problem with AJ is he controls the middle. Like, of, of the heavyweights right now, you know, aged under 30, no one controls the middle better than Anthony Joshua. What I mean by that is his jab and his backhand will dominate that space. And most heavyweights, because they're so used to being the dominant man in the ring, haven't got the lateral movement to cope with that. Dillian White hasn't got the footwork to cope with that yet, but that could easily come along. So to beat AJ, you need lateral movement and you need to be able to move your head across two or three different dimensions. Um, For me, the skill level is, if you go back to last night and watch... Jamal Charlo versus Julian J. Rock Williams. What a knockout. <laughs> There's a defensive sequence there where Charlo basically pulls back from a jab, rolls his left shoulder inwards to not only avoid the right hand, but to deflect it. So he uses his upper arm and his elbow to then deflect, you know, the right hand of J. Rock. And the immediate shot that comes back is an uppercut from hell. Now, that's the sort of thing that would mess Joshua up because he wouldn't, you know, heavyweights don't normally do that. They should, you know, I train a young man, Courtney Bennett, who's more than capable of doing that and has done it against, you know, against professionals and sparring. But very few heavyweights are used to boxing as a smaller man. So they don't do these sorts of things. And that's why AJ has the advantage. You know, Dillian will try and be the big man in there instead of going, well, actually, I'm smaller than AJ. Let me emphasize that fact that I'm smaller by being more nimble. So, him Dillian at 100%, AJ at 100%, it's still a fight that AJ wins. Quick touch on that, by the way. Uh, I know we criticised the mismatches and the dangers that British fighters are being put into the ring with at present. There is no way that Julian Williams should have been allowed to carry on after that uppercut knockdown. He was in no state to carry on. Charlo jumped on him, could have done serious damage. The referee was a fucking idiot for letting happen. Yeah, from the way he fell, man, that's when you stop a fight. Yep. If you fall forward, that's Space the fight over. Okay, I've got seven questions from um, JFB Sports. I'm tossing a coin, and I'm gonna we're gonna do quick fire. I'm gonna ask you a question. Get get heads. through them. Heads from Martin. Heads it is. Right, Martin, you can go first. David Allen, what should 2017 hold for the likable lad? Find a permanent trainer. Um, find a permanent promoter. Go and fight for an area-level title. Failing that fight, someone like Akinlado for the English. Terry, despite a quality duel between White Chisora and Dillian, world-level or British-level with world title opportunities? Dillian can fight for a world title. I think he'll make it credible and he'll make the build-up more than interesting. So there'll be money involved for whoever wants it. Martin, Callan Smith, despite being mandatory, will he fight the winner of... Badu Jack to Gale, or will the purse percentage means he uh, mean he will seek fights elsewhere? He'll take that fight, I believe. I know what you mean about the purse percentages, meaning that he's guaranteed a minimal amount of the purse. Um, but it's Hearn. Hearn said has some links to the Gale. I'm sure they'll sort out a reasonable um, split somewhere down the middle. And yeah, he'll take it because Gallagher fighters don't take real fights beforehand. Terry, is Joseph Parker a paper champ or the real deal? Well, you heard after the last fight where I said I thought he was overrated, he looked poor. Andy Ruiz is basically a super middleweight who just doesn't want to cut weight. (laughs) 
and he couldn't get him out of there. You know, the, the, the guy actually looked like he had just come out. I mean, just come out of narcos. One of the extras on narcos or something. And, you know, as impressive as Ruiz is with his hand speed, and to be honest, he throws really clever combinations when he can be bothered. Parker should have been far more dominant in that fight. You know, guys like Huey Fury and David Hay are licking their lips going, that's an easy belt to win. He's impressive for fat, man. That's is it going to be another to. Charles Martin scenario of somebody mm, gets paid to no, come no, over and do No, 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 but let's go back. Like, Joseph Parker fought in the Junior Summer Olympics, I think it was, where he lost to Tony Yoka. So make of that what you will. Like, I think Tony Yoka's barely 24. And I imagine if Yoka turned pro, he wouldn't be afraid to fight Parker anytime soon. So Parker is good for what he is, but ultimately you're a kid from New Zealand. So there's a ceiling, you know, there's a ceiling to how far you're really going to go. And I expect when one of the more serious contenders shows up, he'll just hand the belt over. Uh, Martin, what should I pack for my lunch tomorrow? Cheese sandwich and crisps. Classic. What flavour crisps? Whatever's in the cupboard. Uh, smoky bacon, ideally. But, yeah. <laughs> standard ideally. One. Standard one. They, they go well inside the cheese sandwich, I think. Uh, yeah, you can mop it up with like the remnants <laughs> of the crisps. You can use the sandwich leftovers to really get into the packet. It makes a good mix. Terry, what's the rest reaction to Derek getting the first judge decision? Did he, wipe, did he tip White off that he won anyway? Yeah, I haven't seen that, so I don't know. But... I, look, match from fighters losing at that level in a card be a very hard one because guys want to come back. The thing is, all those guys, because you know, they're all refs, so they, they love the match from Jolly. They get the hotel for a couple of nights, maybe a couple of prostitutes, I don't know. And then, <laughs> you know, you get, you, you get to judge a fight and if you give Eddie the result he wants, you get to come back again. You know, these guys are middle-aged <laughs> men. Like, this is the highlight of their year. And Martin, finally, has Gallagher Jim fell on its ass beyond return? No, no, sadly. You know we're going to see them back sadly. at like. Sadly. <laughs> you know that there's always going to be a home for him because him and Eddie seem to have some special relationship um, whereby, you know, they will find soft matches for everyone. You know Scott Quiggs is going to get a fight for his featherweight title at some point and it'll be some WBA regular one or some bollocks like that. Um, because they seem to love each other. I don't know what it is, but there's a very special relationship there and it will keep churning on, sadly. Okay, so we've got all through the questions and we are. it is now time for Arguing and Arguing. No, 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 we're out of time. No, 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 no. There's a red line on the screen. If I was to count, there'd be riots in the streets. We had a long time. Um, no, no, the streets are like, no, no more arguing the inarguable. If it's <laughs> inarguable, just stop like... trying. <laughs> stop trying. Okay, so Sam Khan has sent in an argue the inarguable, so clearly we have to do it. This is something the fans love, Terry. So, Terry, quick success redeems Gallagher's training model and methods. 2017 will be a rebirth of Gallagher 2.0. So Gallagher's going to open a special needs school and take the skills that he's developed in in coaching certain fighters to a, to a new level. And, and through that, you can expect 2017 to be an incredible year for the Gallagher gym as they branch over into special needs education. Um, I'm not saying everyone from up north is struggling, 
but you know there's there's a lot of work in that gym required to get some of those guys up to a, you know level like i'm I'm just happy that quick's doing interviews now because there was a time when he was just in the corner rocking his head back and forth <laughs> so i'm just know. imagine you know when like they show aj entering the uh the arena just his sunshine bus pulls up <laughs> it's got a quick licking the window in the back <laughs> licking the steam off it <laughs> crayon out of his nose <laughs> Oh God! I, we just the, the line is back there somewhere about an hour ago. <laughs> we told right. you to stop this. Eh? Right. You're causing problems, Martin. I'm so impressed with the Klitschko AJ announcement that I'm definitely going to pay for every pay per view fight in 2017 and beyond. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Because ultimately, um, you need the money to make this happen. So for me, I think, you know, we start the year off with one in March, one in April. So you got, hey, Bellew, um, Bellew needs to eat. Bellew, you know, needs that food to make his way up to heavyweight. So we've got to pay for it at home. Klitschko Joshua, I legitimately don't have an issue with. And then hopefully we'll get Scott Quigg versus Kaniel Napa Watamanya, uh, for 18 pounds, <laughs> only 18 pounds. <laughs> in maybe May uh, and I think we'll make this one per year and then I could buy like a season ticket if you said it's 160 <laughs> quid for the year like then I don't have to worry about the, the money per pay-per-view um, yeah let's oh, for fuck's sake <laughs> <laughs> wrapping yourself in knots behind the mathematics that you literally won't even pay for anyway <laughs> I was amazed knowing your attention span of these things that you went on for that long. Yeah. It clicked, didn't it? It fell apart. Um, Much like Joe Gallagher and his gym. <laughs> his school. <laughs> right. This is where we leave you. Uh, In a, a mess. A, over 90 minutes there. But there you go. Value. Uh Nothing left to say. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Get in touch at New Age Boxing UK. shit. At the Seven Wolves and at New Age Podfather. Please get in touch. Argue the inarguables. Questions. Apparently, even lists of questions that we can do quick fire rounds with. Uh, it's all good. Get in touch. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Cheers, guys. Nice. I'm gonna get it up, I'm gonna get it up, I'm gonna get it up.